Well, it has been a great series, and uh, this now six weeks where each weekend we have picked a topic where uh, if you're playing with fire, you could literally burn the house down. And so today is no exception. As a matter of fact, we saved this one for last, and today uh, we're talking about pornography. Yikes. <laughs> We start a Bible study in our home, and 25 years later, this is what it comes to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and if you would have told me 25 years ago that I'd be on stage with the microphone talking about pornography, I would have run away. But <laughs> the world has changed a lot in 25 years, and we probably should have, well, we definitely should have talked about this topic sooner because it's so pervasive. Um, 25 years ago, our family got their first computer, a giant behemoth Apple computer, and we could play Pong and Oregon Trail. So we thought we were like at the height of technology. And now we all have, there's my phone, this in our pocket. And we have access to great information and terrible darkness 24 hours a day. Statistics say that one out of five searches on a mobile device is for pornography. It's shocking. Even when we were preparing for this topic, the more I learned, the more convinced I became that this is not something we can ignore and that we would be poor leaders and pastors and parents. The mom and dad of this church, it's our responsibility to educate you, to warn you, to protect you and to equip you so that you can be prepared for this issue and you can prepare your life, your marriage, your friends, your children for this terrible plague on our society. That's why we're having this conversation today. Well said. Uh, the psalmist said, uh, my enemies have laid a snare for me. What's oh, a snare? You know what a snare is? Yeah. It's a hidden trap that you're going to walk right into. And there's all different types of snares. It's a very effective way to catch uh, even a very smart animal. And I think that scripture applies very well to pornography. Our enemy has set a snare for us. So Cornerstone, uh, we'll just say right off the bat, we've been one of those churches that just didn't talk about this enough. And uh, some of our people have paid the price for it. Some of our young people have paid the price for it, but it's not just a young person's issue. And we're not gonna be that church ever, ever again anymore. As a matter of fact, any topic, we're gonna go right at it. We have to. Uh, this is 2017. So for whatever reason uh, that we didn't talk about it much, we're sorry. Uh, we don't even completely understand ourselves well enough to know why we didn't, because we talk about other stuff. But uh, that's over now. And joining us today is uh, my friend and co-worker, a pastor on our staff. I know you know Brenda, but you might yet not yet know Debbie Curtis. And uh, Debbie is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she's full-time on our team. She leads all the care ministries across all of the campuses. And uh, so, Debbie, you were a big part of even influencing us to have this series or to have this sermon so I thought, well, then if you want me to preach it, you have to come up here and sit with me. <laughs> you know. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, always make suggestions. But uh, let's, start, let's start with that. 
even what even what somebody who, who came today is going, oh brother, you know, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. Is porn a big deal? Uh, yeah, it is a big deal. Uh, 40 million Americans watch pornography regularly. And it touches men, women, and children. It destroys marriages. Um, it, it affects the brain development. It causes people to isolate themselves. And I could go on and on about the negative effects of pornography. Um, this is personal to our family, and that's the reason I'm up here today, because um, this issue crept into our home, and it hurt my sons. And I'm not going to let it hide in the dark anymore. And I want us to know how dangerous this is and how prevalent and available it is. So tell us more about that. How easy is it to get, to, to get pornography? And is it only a young man's issue, or who does it affect? Yeah, it, it, um, it affects a lot of people. 70% of young men between the ages of 18 and 26 view pornography on a regular basis. And 47% of men, 26 and above, view pornography monthly. So it's definitely a, a man's issue, but it's very important to understand that it's also a woman's issue, and that's growing. One third of the viewers out there are women. And I was meeting with a therapist who specializes in sexual addiction, and I asked her, hey, do you have any groups for women that are struggling with pornography? And she said, Deb, I really don't. I can't bring women in. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, women won't come forward. Women don't seek counseling when it comes to pornography struggles. So hopefully today in this conversation, we're gonna open the door and we want you to know this is a safe place and we wanna help you, we wanna equip you. And male or female, young or old, whatever your age or season in life is, if you're struggling with this, we have help for you. Tell us more about how it impacts children. Yeah, uh, the average age of exposure is 10 years old and that's in boys and in girls. So at ages 10, 11, 12 years old, kids' minds are developing, their bodies are changing, and they're becoming very curious, mm -hmm. right, about relationships, about what's going on in their bodies, about intimacy. Mm -hmm. And 90% of pornography is demeaning towards women. Mm -hmm. It's sexually aggressive. So these kids that are clicking on pornography are getting a very warped sexual template. Yeah, and the bummer is, is they're missing out on God's design for what intimacy really should be. So, so what happens when that child develops that addiction, which happens very quickly, apparently? So now, now that, that addict, talk to me about that person. Yeah, when kids become hooked on pornography, uh, they begin to isolate themselves there's a whole lot of shame that's involved, and um, they're preoccupied. And because of this, they miss opportunities to connect with other people. And oftentimes that can lead to emotional and relational undevelopment. And then if they, if they continue pornography until adulthood, uh, they can really, really struggle with genuine intimacy and relationships 
they have unrealistic expectations uh, for uh, sexual experiences, right? Those, those unrealistic expectations cannot be met in real life situations. Their lives become dull and boring at times because they're turning towards artificial stimulation. Mm -hmm. And um, they can become depressed. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of emptiness as well. Right. So if we could... Um help you guys understand and warn you that whatever we could do to convince you to have these conversations with your family, with your spouses, with your loved ones, to set up safeguards and guardrails and filters and have conversations and go ahead and let your children know that they can talk to you about anything. And now we are, we're not raising, but we have grandchildren and we see how much access they have to technology from the beginning of their life. So. It's not an issue that you could ignore. We need to be aware and we need to be prepared. I think too, I think we have to call out all the victims of pornography because I think the person viewing pornography does not see themselves as a victim and they already are. They, just because you make yourself a victim of something doesn't make you any less of a victim. You are consuming poison and it is being fed to you and Every time that you uh, log on and, and, and you consume this, it's, it's more poison in your system, which is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul would say. I want you to think about these things. I want you to think about pure things. I want you to think about uh, things that are worthy to think about. And he has this huge list of things that, that we are putting into our mind because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he was smart enough to know that in his lifetime, the things that he put into his brain that caused him then to either act out or to even just think thoughts they shouldn't be thinking, say, objectifying women or anything around sexuality, he put that into his mind. He made himself a victim. But also, uh, the victims of pornography are the relatives of the people that get addicted to pornography. Uh, that person's husband, that person's wife, um, the, the parent who discovers that their child uh, is, is doing these things, then, then the family members are also, be, also become victims. The other victim of pornography are many of the people who are being filmed. And no matter what your fantasies are telling you of how much this person is enjoying this experience that's being filmed, uh, Many of those people are slaves. They're owned by other people. They have no choice. And they are acting. And you're participating in human slavery in that regard. And that's not me talking. Those, these, are these are government statistics. And so I think for us to say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, there's no, nobody gets hurt. I've heard that. No one gets hurt. No, every single person who touches pornography gets hurt. We, we themed the whole six weeks on the proverb that says, can a person scoop fire into their lap and not be burned? This fire that we're scooping into our lap burns us. And this is why it's very important for us to address it as an issue that's not just, oh, don't do it because God is narrow-minded about sex. People, God invented sex. He put a man and a woman in a garden with no clothing on. <laughs> and he said, this is good. 
And he didn't say, this is good. He's not a creepy old God. He's like, <laughs> and, but it's so, we are so warped that it's hard for us to even think of a God who said, this is really good. They're on their honeymoon forever. And uh, it wasn't until sin crept in that they, that they craved clothing and covering. Why? Because now they're ashamed. So uh, anyway, enough of the hopelessness. Yes. How about if you give us some hope? Tell us how we can conquer this issue and what you've seen in your counseling offices and people that are working through this issue. Yeah, in my, in my role, I get the opportunity to walk alongside uh, men and women uh, to recovery, and I get to see marriages healed. Uh, these individuals, they find hope, and they move forward in what God has in store for them. That's really exciting. And today we get to talk about that. Our leaders here at Cornerstone have courageously uh, agreed to come out and tell their stories of their struggles of pornography and their finding of freedom. And I'm so proud of them for their honesty and their willingness to open up and be vulnerable with us today. Well, Debbie, I'm going to ask you then to make room on the couch for them. Thank you so much. Uh, could we please hear it for Debbie Curtis? And as prevalent as pornography is in the church, uh, we need to call out that it's, it's prevalent among people who are godly and people who have been seeking after God their whole lives. And so as Brenda mentioned, pornography attacked our home years ago, and we kept it private because of the privacy of our children. And, uh, you know, it's, it's okay for me to stand up here and talk about myself, but um, these are our own kids. But one of them... Uh, has uh, not only agreed to, but volunteered to be part uh, of this uh, team today. So please welcome my son, uh, Pastor Andrew Madsen. And joining him is uh, Pastor Becky, that you know, but you may not know Becky's husband, Garrett. And uh, he tells everybody he's the better half, so we're going to find out. He's the funny one. Super funny guy up here. Yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> All this. Yeah. So, uh, so Andrew, let, let's start with you. You, you. Your journey with pornography started years before Mom and I knew anything about it. And, and for that, it's hard for us not to shame ourselves because we had a very tight family. And uh, uh, But by the time we knew about it, you had already been uh, addicted to pornography for a long time. Let's talk about your journey. Yeah. Um, I'd say to any parents in the room, if, if, that's, if that's a concern for you, um, you, you might have a kid who just doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want, to, doesn't want to share that thing. And you may have done everything that you could to let them know this is a safe space and you can tell me anything. That's, it's up to them at that point if they want to open up to you. And I didn't, I didn't want to uh, for a long time. So you can at least know, have I done everything I can to communicate the message? You can tell me anything. This is a safe space. Um, and then you just pray that God opens up your kid, that, that they are, are willing to talk to you at some point. Um, but for me, uh, I'd say in, in, in middle school, uh, two different friends through uh, print material and then another friend who had a computer in his room. Uh, I mean, you guys were talking about just kind of the, the age of the internet coming upon us and us not be, even being fully prepared for everything that would come with that. We weren't prepared as kids either. And, and the reaction of me and my friends was like, whoa, look at the things that you can see here. And, uh, 
And that was, that was what it was like for me. It was like, whoa. And I, there's, different, there's different things that you can get addicted to, um, all kinds of substances and behaviors. None of those other things really held sway in my life, but pornography had my number. It just sunk its talons into me right away. I liked it. I, I wanted more of it. Uh, and at the same time, the, the conflict for me was I, I really loved Jesus. I was, uh, I'd, I'd say as a good, good church kid, and, and I, I really deeply, sincerely loved Jesus. And so for me, uh, this was a secret that I, that I carried around with me, um, a secret that I didn't want to acknowledge for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons being I, I don't want to let go of this. And so if, I, if I'm honest about what this is and what this is doing for me, then I'm going to have to change. And so for a long time, I wasn't being honest about what it really was. But then a turning point for me was when um, just one time in the middle of the day on our home computer, I'm, I'm looking at pornography and my little brother Tyler walks into the room and I didn't know because we had carpeted floors and he's a little guy so he came in pretty silently. But then as soon as I saw him, I, I lurched forward and covered the screen with my arms and I said, Tyler, don't, don't look at what's on the screen. And he said, why? And I had to admit, it had to come out of my own mouth. Well, because... There's something bad on the screen. And uh, that was the first time that I had admitted uh, what was really going on, what I really knew. But it took my little brother coming into the room and me even realizing, like, if this isn't good for you, then why is this good for me? Um, and so that was the turning point for me. And I would say that then I started to seek out help from youth pastors and different people who, who were very safe people to talk to and compassionate and understanding and would pray with me and offer advice and they were always somebody I could talk to. And the confession was good. It was really, really helpful to come into the light and go, oh, that wasn't, that actually, I, I feel better now. But then um, I realized that more needed to happen than just confession. There were actual steps that I needed to take uh, to different behaviors, different thoughts to actually root this out of my life. So that's kind of how things began. Garrett, why don't you jump in there and your story is somewhat like Andrew's, but also different. Yeah, I think age-wise, we were pretty similar. I was 13 the first time I saw something pornographic. It was at a family reunion. Um, yeah, that's where, that's where this kind of stuff goes down. Like, it's not supposed like, to. What uh, is going on with your family? I know, people are like, now we know. Now we know why he's like this. Um, no, it was... It was as like, it was as simple as me and my cousins hanging out in their room, and it's the year 2000, and they had a, a computer in their room, which was rare and probably not the best idea. Um, it probably still isn't a good idea, to be honest. But uh, I just remember all of a sudden I was looking at a pornographic video, and like Andrew said, I was, I was instantly hooked into it. And I, I did know it was wrong, though. Like, I, I knew it was wrong. We were really on edge about being caught, and that it was interesting. I was still really curious. And so I kind of took that curiosity home with me and I, I started finding ways to access it at home. And, uh, and that was primarily on a computer, on television. And uh, my parents, you know, they had no idea that how quick technology was moving. They had no idea how easily I could access it. They had no idea I was becoming an expert, not just in accessing it, but doing it uh, and leaving no trail. And, uh, and so five years later, you know, I'm 18 now, and I'm, I'm just fully addicted. Um, I can't stop, and I'm sitting in my, my room, and I'm, I'm just broken. I, I know that I, I have a huge problem, and I'm reading the Bible because I'm, I still go to church. I still love Jesus. I, I still want to do well, but I, 
I'm just at my breaking point and, and God's nudging me to, to tell somebody. Tell us about that. How did you reach out for help? I did what any normal 18-year-old does, and at 2 a.m. I woke my mom up. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, mom, I know it's early, but I have something I need to tell you. Um, and in, in typical my mom fashion, she jumped up like she hadn't been sleeping and was like, what? Like, I want to know, and, and I told her, and the brokenness in my mom was not any sort of anger at me. Uh, and that's, that helped a lot. She was really sad for, for me, and she was angry at herself. She felt like she had let me down. But it wasn't, it wasn't her fault. Like, I had, I had done this on my own, and it had it just kind of come upon me so quickly, and I wasn't prepared for it. But that was the beginning of my story uh, to healing. Becky, tell us about when you come into the picture. Yeah, so... Garrett's 18 when that happens. Uh, a year later, he goes to college, and we meet. And then a year after that, we start dating. And we dated for three years before we got married. And during that time, uh, like most dating couples do, we had that awful conversation where you talk about your past relationships and your past history. And Talk about a long list. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so many guys. And taller and better looking. And... <laughs> None better looking, but some were taller, I yeah. Know. Uh, <laughs> she said. And um, it was during that conversation that Garrett told me about his addiction to pornography when he was in high school. And uh, he talked about it more in the past tense. And to be honest, I'm a homeschooled girl from the Midwest. I was completely naive to all that this would entail. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that the conversation would ever need to go beyond that. I, I didn't think about it further. And we, a few years go by, we get engaged, we get married, and to bring this up again never even crossed my mind. Uh, and then nine months into our marriage, I find porn on my computer. And I ask Garrett about it, and uh, he tells me that it's not his. He doesn't know how it got there. And the conversation kind of ended there. So you just lied? I just lied. I mean, I, I wasn't ready for what that would mean for our marriage if I identified that that was mine. And it's a horrible lie when you think about it. Like, whose could it possibly be? Um, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Like, that, that's what it was. I, I went into default mode. It's something I would have done when I was much younger to get out of being in trouble from my parents or something like that. And I was so afraid of what it meant for our marriage, um, but it like weighed heavily on me that I, I had not just looked at pornography, it hadn't you know, just kind of crept back into my life, but now I'd lied about it. And I knew that I would do that again and again and again to avoid confronting like the real issue. Um, so I waited three months to talk about it. Um, I like to think I have really good timing and I'm like a helpless romantic. So I, um, on our one year anniversary, um, I know, uh, seriously. So Becky, like what spurred me towards that was, I know, I'm, gosh, I am bad. Um, I, Becky gave me a, a gift on our one year that was, uh, it was just a, a picture of our vows. And it was framed, and I was reading through them, and I, I was not upholding my vows to my wife. And I had to do it then. Right. Just like I had to do it that night when I talked to my mom. If I didn't, I don't know if I ever would have done it. And so as bad of timing as it was, 
um, my gift back to Becky that year was the worst conversation of her life. Um, it, but I had to do it. I had to swallow my pride and I had to make a, the most difficult decision I could have made in my life at that time and say, I have a problem and I need you to know about it and I lied to you. And so I did that. So what was that moment like for you? Yeah, not the best timing. Um, in that moment, I, um, I was shocked. I felt hurt. I felt betrayed. I was angry. I was insecure. My mind was just like racing the whole time. And in that moment, I just felt the Holy Spirit prompt me to take a deep breath and just listen. Mm -hmm. To not react right away, which is not my natural tendency. And now that I look back on that, like I know that was God caring for me in that moment and caring for my marriage. Because the reality is, like, whether it's right or wrong or fair, how I responded in that moment, in that conversation, it would dictate whether Garrett would say, oh, I'm so glad I told her. I don't know why I waited so long. Or whether he would say, man, I knew I should have kept this a secret. Like, how I reacted in that moment would either allow for healing to take place or for a further wedge to be driven between us. And so I just remember asking God, like, I need your wisdom. Like, I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to say or how to say it while still being true to, like, the vast array of emotions that I'm feeling. And again, it was just the Holy Spirit. He said, okay, Becky, you had all these questions going through your mind, all these things you want to ask, all these things you want to say. Before you ask Garrett a question, I want you to ask yourself, will knowing the answer to this question help either of us heal? And so that's what I did. I filtered every question I asked through that lens. And so questions like, hey, how often is this a struggle for you? Questions like, how are you primarily ac accessing this pornography? Uh, how can I help? Where, where do we go from here? What's next? Those were all questions I asked because those were all questions that would help us start this healing process. Questions I didn't ask were questions like, well, what kind of porn do you watch? Like, I was curious. I, I wanted to ask those questions. I thought I deserved to know those details. But when I filtered it through the lens of, hey, well, knowing the answer to this question help either of us heal, the answer was obviously no. Like, knowing that answer wouldn't help me uh, heal. It would, it would just cause me to feel more hurt, to feel more insecure. Me knowing the answer to that question would just cause him to feel more shame and more embarrassment. And so I just leaned into the Holy Spirit in that conversation. And, and that conversation was really the first time that I was able to live out my wedding vows in a meaningful way. Because a year to the day, <laughs> I stood before God and before Garrett and our family and our friends, and I vowed that I would support him and love him for better or for worse. 
And those weren't conditional vows. They weren't vows I made as long as he did the same thing. And so even though this was a moment of worse, I remember resolving that I was going to be Garrett's ally. I love that word ally, and I love that you use that in this context. To me, that means linking arms like a united front. Tell me why you chose that word and what that means to you. Yeah, it means like I was making the conscious decision that I wasn't going to view Garrett as the enemy here. Right. Because he's not. He's a victim just like I'm a victim. The enemy is pornography. And choosing to be Garrett's ally means that this isn't just his struggle, something he had, needs to deal with and figure out, and you got to stop doing that and fix it. No, like this means that, okay, this is our struggle. We are linking arms, like you said, Brenda. We're going to walk this journey together because it's something that he's had to deal with alone and in secrecy and in shame for far too long, and, and that's going to stop. We're in this together, and I'm not going to let pornography take my marriage or take my husband. Talk to us about someone that has already had this conversation with a spouse or a loved one, and it maybe did not go well, and they need a do-over. What would you say about that? Yeah, this is never an easy conversation to have, and no one's prepared for it. And I think a lot of people react how I would typically react. And we say things we regret, we, we react immediately and, and, and allow our emotions to control us. And, and so I would say if that's you, like we serve a God who's a God of second chances. And he's a God who uh, gives us his spirit who lives inside of us and, and teaches us how to, how to respond the way, right way, how to, how to respond with godly wisdom. And so lean into that. The same Holy Spirit who lives inside of me is the same Holy Spirit who lives inside of everyone who's a follower of Jesus. And, and so if that's you and, and that conversation hasn't gone well, like just give it another try, have it, and lean into the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance for that. I'm gonna go off script for a sec. Garrett, why did you do this? Why, not why did you access porn, why did you tell her? Like, why couldn't you just have told some buddies, like some Christian friends, and, and just solved it without hurting her? I think one of the biggest lies the enemy can ingrain in us is that we're protecting our wife by not telling them, or our spouse. And that was a lie that I believed for a long time that my job was to protect her. And um, when I finally came to the consensus that I would never get better, I would never get right, unless Becky became my ally, my teammate with this, I made that decision. Because uh, I had talked to buddies about it. I had talked to my dad about it. It, it. Nothing worked. And so I had to take drastic measures and do something that could have ruined my marriage. Uh, and that's what I had worried about. And, uh, and Becky responded in a way that just thrust me into healing um, instead of into darkness like I had been in before. So you were depending on the strong feminine that she would be who you knew she would be. I knew she would be that for me. Yeah. I finally came to that realization and she was. So many times we think of the man being the protector and the woman being like the nurturer, but our wives are, they also are our protector. And if we don't lean into that, we're fools. 
if, if I don't let Brenda protect me so many times in 37 years, Brenda has protected me. And I think it's so important for us to see in a healthy marriage, we protect each other. And uh, all right, so Andrew, where did it start for you? Uh, how did you, where's the, where's the turning point? Where's the... Um, I, probably if I was in the middle of, of it, uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you uh, where like recovery started for me. But the thing about, um, for all of us, whatever your brokenness is, whatever your struggle is, it's um, from then on, it's like that's the lens through which you read the scriptures. Um, you just see it everywhere. And so for me, um, I could point you to all kinds of characters in the Bible, all kinds of stories, all kinds of moments that I now see there's what happened, but then there's also this other lens I see it through of, of struggle, of addiction, of snares, but also of recovery and life and redemption. And um, so, so one of those stories that was really important for me um, also, I would say, is connected to where my recovery had to start. Um, it's, it starts with Jesus asking all of us a question, um, and the question is, do you want to get well? Um, in John 5, Jesus meets this man who's been paralyzed for nearly four decades of his life. And the story says that when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And that question used to bug me. I just felt like Jesus has no social skills. <laughs> like, you do, how... How dare you ask somebody in that kind of condition, do you want to get better? Of course he wants to get better. But the more I identified with this, this man and his situation and his struggle and his questions, I realized this is the perfect question for Jesus to ask this guy in this situation. Now, obviously, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between paralysis and then the effects that sinful desires, um, especially like pornography, can have on your heart and mind and life, but it's a pretty dang good metaphor. I would, I would say paralysis definitely describes what took over my life. And, um, and so... Uh, this is a great question for Jesus to ask because this man might not want to get well. Um, if, if Jesus heals this man, everything in his life is gonna change, everything. His, his job status, his relationships with people, his identity. For the last 38 years, he has figured out how to get by. He has a system and it works for him. If he chooses everything that comes with this healed life uh, there's a lot that comes with that, a lot of change. Everything's gonna be different. It's gonna be hard, especially at the beginning, and he might not want that. And so every addict has to be asked by Jesus, do you wanna get well? And we have to be able to answer that question. Do I want this? Am I willing to change my life? Am I willing to live like somebody who can now walk rightly, or am I still committed to the paralyzed lifestyle? Because as long as I'm still on the fence, the healing's not gonna take. And in my own experience, I have learned that Jesus won't heal you until you want to be healed. Jesus will not override my will. I have to welcome the healing. I have to ask for it. I have to say, yep, let's do this. Okay, so let's just, let's, let's do a little back and forth here. So I know you identify with that. I want to get well. I'm telling you, Becky, yes, I want to get well. What's next? So yeah, that first question you have to ask yourself, I was really hoping it would be a one-time moment I had with God, where it's just like, okay, I'm better. Mm -hmm. And it's not. 
I wish it was. I, it, it started with just pure transparency. Uh, first with conversations. That first one I had with Becky was terrible. But like I said, I wish that was the only one I ever had to have with her. But it wasn't. So having consistent conversations uh, with each other was first, but also having transparent accountability and saying, we're married, it's open. You can know anything you wanna know, you're gonna know everything you wanna know. It's, it's wide open for accountability. Um, that was huge. And then also just being transparent with myself of where, what happens when I get to these places, actually physically documenting them, like writing down triggers, uh, things that are getting me to that place where I end up going back to what I used to do. Uh, and then also what are safeguards I have to put in place in order to be more successful in my life? Yeah, I think I, I love what you said. I, I want to go back to triggers and safeguards because I, I think it's easier, especially for women, to just say, well, men are scum. It's all about lust. They just need to control that. And the reality as men is what you're doing is you have, a, you have actually a healthy need. Well, you have a need, and then there's unhealthy ways and healthy ways to meet that need. So the trigger for you to identify your triggers is really smart because you're saying, this is when I need, and my brain is telling me I need pornography. Yep. So talk to, talk to me about, like, what are some of your triggers? So uh, stress was a big one for me, um, and now I teach middle school math. <laughs> Fractions are the death of me. Um, it's stressful. And so I get done at 3 o'clock, and Becky's off work at 5.30. My, my brain used to go to that's free time. And that's when I used to really struggle. And so now I don't, I don't get that. I will work late or I'll go to my parents' house or I'll go work out or I'll coach an after-school sport. I will come up with any reason to not be at home uh, by myself. Um, that's the first one. Um, if I'm tired, overly tired, that's another trigger for me. Um, but then I also need to add in safeguards. And these are things that I chose to do. If Becky had chosen them for me, they wouldn't work. They just wouldn't. Uh, I have chosen not to have social media. It's trash for me. It doesn't help. I don't need to know what's going on in people's lives uh, on social media. I don't need to know what kind of bread you're eating. Congratulations. Um, I, I, I can't download apps on my phone. At or, all. At all. Like, so if someone's like, hey, like dude. ESPN. Yeah, download the ESPN app. I'm like, sorry, can't because of porn. <laughs> You lead with that, right? Yeah, totally. I have so many friends. Um, yeah, I've just had to put these things in my life because I can't live like a normal person. I have to live like I have an addiction. And that has, when, that has been when I've had the best times of my life. And then just adding to it, I just, we put filters on everything. My devices, her devices, uh, the filter we use is called Covenant Eyes. Um, and Be Becky gets a detailed description of everything that I look at on the internet. Um, and she could ask me anything about that. And, and some people would look at that list and they'd say like, man, you're, th you're like a 30 year old man, are, are you serious? And my response would be, are you serious? Like for real, if, if you want help with this, you have to go to drastic measures that are uncomfortable and not fun and embarrassing at times. <laughs> And you have to learn to thrive and love those things. And that's what I've learned to do. And I can sit here and I can look my wife in the eye and I can say that I'm healed and I feel as free as I've ever felt in my life.
There are people that have been married 20 years that are jealous of your marriage <laughs> right now. And um, I just, I, I can't wait till the end to just say how proud I am to have this pastor and her husband on our staff. You guys, you, you're not only the future, you're now, and right. you're leading well. I appreciate you so much. Um, you're, let's go back to being a junior high. Let's go back to being a junior high teacher. Can you talk to these parents about their kids and their devices? <laughs> yeah. We don't have enough time. Right. So it is moving so quickly, right. as you know. Technology is changing. I cannot keep up, keep up with it, but you know that there are now thousands of ways that your kids can be involved with pornography. And that involves their own bodies and all of that kind of stuff too now. You have to be your child's ally in all of this. You have to put safeguards up. You have to put filters up. You have to be willing to have those honest conversations with them because it's moving fast. Any device you can think of, a video game console, a PlayStation, an Xbox, a tablet, a computer, a phone, anything, a TV, can access the internet and they can access things that are not good for them. And coming from somebody who only had one way really to access it and now seeing this, it just, it is dangerous. Right. And I would just encourage you to have those conversations yeah. with them. Because the reality is your kids are always gonna be more tech savvy than you are. I mean, that was the case with Garrett. I'm sure that was the case with you. Like, and so it's not just about putting up safeguards and, and filters and that kind of stuff. It has to, you have to address the heart. You have to be having those conversations because they'll always find ways to go around the safeguards if that's what they really want. And so if you can address the heart, that's where you can make the impact. So you say, I'm not only, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to keep this out of your hands and out of your eyes, but I'm also, I want you to know why mm -hmm. this yeah. is bad and why this will destroy your life. Yeah. Yeah. And don't just wait until, don't just play, don't, don't just wait until something's happened and then you're forced to have a conversation. Be proactive. And because the conversations are going to have to start earlier than you would think. Right. Ten years old is the average age now where a child first accesses porn, uh, both boys and girls. So he, we talked about his recovery. What about yours? I think for anyone who is a loved one of someone who's struggling with pornography, it is essential that you have support and accountability as well. Uh, I need people in my life who I can talk openly and honestly with apart from Garrett. Uh, even though I'm talking openly and honestly with him, there's, there's things that I'm, I'm going through that, that I need to talk to with a, a, a counselor, a, a, a friend, a family member, um, a, a support group, someone who's walked through a similar journey um, as I have. And this is true whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a parent or a friend, male or female, like we need people in our lives who can, who can, uh, who can support us because the reality is there were times when I would get angry and frustrated and want to lash out at Garrett. Uh, there were times when, man, I thought things were going great and we're making great strides forward. And then there were times it seemed like almost maybe the next day I, I would feel hopeless and discouraged and like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And now that we're on the other side of this, now that I've seen the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, Garrett and I are going to celebrate our seventh year anniversary in just three weeks. And like... I, I, I know that there is that hope, but this is a long journey and there's ups and downs and you need those people who can, who can speak truth to you and speak encouragement to you and who can walk through this with you. Uh, and then I would say, in addition to that, um, 
I was really surprised by the amount of insecurities that this would bring up for me. Uh, I think it's completely normal in this kind of a situation um, for a spouse to feel like they did something wrong, like, uh, like their spouse is doing this, responding in this way because they're not attractive enough anymore or, or they aren't fulfilling their spouse's sexual needs. And as, as real as those feelings are, they're not truth. They aren't. And Garrett's struggle with pornography was not about me. And your spouse's struggle with pornography is not about you. And, and so that's why it's essential that, uh, that we can understand how to process through these emotions, these insecurities in a healthy way in order to be able to find that healing that we need. So um, Andrew, let's, let's take it to that heart level. Talk to us not just about safeguards, but the, the soul issue here. Yeah, I think um, what, what Garrett and Becky have laid out have, um, are things that would have been immensely helpful for me as well. Um, I think what they're talking about is uh, to use the language of, um, in, in Romans, Paul says, um, make no provision for the sinful nature. Just don't make any provisions. Um, don't leave room for it, but instead you're, you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're putting on his character. And so there, there are very practical things that need to be in place so that we are participating in the healing that God wants to bring about in our life. You have a part to play. But then what I'd also wanna share with you in my own story, and I think Garrett would resonate with this as well, is there, there are things that we cannot do that only God can do for our healing. Um, we're, we're gonna participate, we're gonna be on board with what he wants to do, but there are some things that only God can do. And I would say that every addict needs to have a transformative encounter with the living God. I would say that every addict needs the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Apart from this encounter and apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, all of these, these techniques, all of the strategy, all of these game plans, it's just a Band-Aid. When what you need is a full-scale heart transplant. Uh, in Ezekiel 36, there, there's a passage that's come to mean a lot to me uh, where God describes his, his heart and plans and intentions for us. And he says that he intends to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And you think about the difference between stone and flesh, God wants to give us a heart that feels again, a heart that's human again, a heart that's sensitive to his, his promptings and leadings. Pornography and all kinds of sin, it just makes you numb. It's so dehumanizing. It makes you less than God intended for you to be. And God's like, I wanna make you fully human again. Oh, that's good. And what I made you for is for my spirit to live inside of you. I, I didn't create you for a life where all of these external rules are just holding you at bay temporarily. I want my spirit inside of you because I'm gonna transform you from the inside out. And you and I can't manufacture that encounter. Only God can manufacture, only God can bring that about. And it's gonna happen in his timing and in his way. And you might ask, well, like, well, well, well how do I do that? I couldn't tell you because what God needed to do for me, what God needed to do for Garrett was tailor-made for who we are. And it's gonna be tailor-made for who you are. God's spirit created you and knows you. He will generate that encounter in the way that he sees fit. But we can ask for that encounter. We can seek it out. So Andrew. How did that happen for you when you said, God, I'm serious, help me? 
Um, I think what I had to learn was that my recovery was only going to go as far as what my picture of God was like. If, if God is this small-minded bookkeeper who's just waiting for you to make a mistake, that's as far as your recovery is going to go. And so I had to, and, and, and you will have to go looking for a true picture of what God is like. And, and the best picture is what we find in the Gospels. When Jesus steps on the scene, what he tells people is, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. So we look at Jesus and what it, what, whatever he's doing, we listen to Jesus and whatever we hear him saying, you are hearing and you are seeing the heart of God on display in human form. And uh, Jesus gives us the fullest, truest picture of what God is like. But as the story goes, there are some people who didn't like the picture that was being offered to them. They were committed to a different picture of God. They were deeply, deeply staked in that picture. Their whole life was built around it. And so they, they were offended by the picture that Jesus brought about. The, the, the accusation that the Pharisees leveled against Jesus was, this man eats with sinners and he welcomes them. Ugh. But if you're, if you're an addict, that's the best news you've ever heard. Just, just substitute your name right there. This, this man welcomes Andy and he eats with him. If you're an addict, you go, Jesus welcomes a sinner like me. He wants everything to do with me. Yes, and this is so stunning. This is so unexpected. We would never come up with a God like this in, of our own imagination because the, the Pharisee in Jesus's day and the Pharisee that lives in our heart and our mind would say, if you wanna get reconciled with God, then you get your life right and then God will accept you. Well, that's the way of despair. Because if it's up to you, forget it. But Jesus says, I already accept you, regardless of your performance. Stop putting weight on that. It's never gonna do anything for you. It's never gonna save you. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. You just go, I'm sick. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who say, I don't have what it takes to live the God life. That's how the Sermon on the Mount starts off. And Jesus says, I can work with somebody like that. And it's this good news that generates the desire to change because you've been encountered by somebody who's so good, so unlike anything you've ever expected. And so you become ruthless to rid your life of anything and everything that stands between you and this person that you're like, who are you? You're so good. You're so amazing. I want everything to do with you because you want everything to do with me. This God of grace makes the space that's needed for us to change because you are gonna stumble and fall, you're gonna trip many times. But God's grace makes space for us to fall and to get back up again and again and again until we learn to walk rightly, until we learn to keep in step with the Spirit and as the scriptures say, we're living the life that truly is life. Well, you just preached a powerful sermon and you did it in like seven minutes. I, I know that first possible. part. <laughs> How did you do that? Uh, and you heard a lot of sermons in your life, but you actually had to sit down and talk to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I, needed, a, I needed help from a Christian counselor. Um, I know the scriptures and I know when I'm being um, poked and prodded and I know how to avoid those situations to not say what I don't wanna say and not go where I wanna go. But this, I was in really good hands with this guy. And um, 
he, he was great, and he asked me to meditate on this truth. He said, Andy, I need you to, to not move on from this until it actually sinks in, um, that in this moment, you are both fully known and fully loved by God. And, and uh, that struck me as a contradiction. I don't know about you. I'm fully known and fully loved by God, please. Um, but this, this was so important for me to learn because I, I would say, yeah, I'm fully known by God. I can't keep secrets from him, but I hadn't yet trusted that I was loved before I was clean. But in the gospels, Jesus loves us. He accepts us before we're changed. While we were still sinners, while we're still his enemies, Christ died for us. That's what the scriptures tell us. And now the healing can begin because I know that I am safe in the presence of, of God, my redeemer. Not God who wants to crush me and judge me. And, no, but God who wants to save me and redeem me. And I can be with him while I'm still in the middle of the mess that I've created. Before I'm well on the road to recovery, I am already his beloved son. And for anybody within the sound of my voice, this is what God wants to say to you. You are my beloved son. You're my daughter. I'm so pleased with you. I'm so, I'm crazy about you. You don't even know how, how often I think about you. Your name is carved into my hand. I am for you, I'm with you. There's nothing that can separate you from my love. And when we become his beloved sons and daughters, God our Father gives us his very spirit and life to live in us. The, the, the scriptures describes the spirit as the spirit of adoption, the spirit in us who even in the middle of the night when you're like, Dad, I blew it again. I'm here again. The very fact that you even said, Dad, is, is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in you and with you. The Holy Spirit is so committed to your transformation. He sees who you are, but he also sees where he wants to take you. He knows your destiny, and it's to look like Jesus. He's so hopeful for you, even if you aren't hopeful for yourself. And when you trust this, you have everything that you need to begin your road to recovery because the God who is with you, he is for you, he is committed to your redemption, and he will be with you and in you every step of the way. There's hope for your regeneration now and in the life to come. That's our God. He loves you. He's bigger than this. Wow. Brenda, years ago, we were on a hiking trail in Montana. And I, I don't know if you're going to even know what I'm going to say. Oh, but I totally know what you're going to say. Really? <laughs> About the bear? Yeah, I took a picture of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, I wish I had it up on the screen. Um, we were going to go on a hike, and there was this post on the, like, trailhead, and it said... It had a date and a time. Yeah. And it said, pissed off mama grizzly bear, do not go on this hike. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen you in this mode when, when, when your sons, you weren't mad at them, you were mad at the devil. Amen. And you're the mama bear of this church. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit and pray for us. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I would say, I hope that you've heard from our story and being willing to be vulnerable, and you guys for being so brave and courageous and sharing the journey you've been on. It means so much to us, and we're so proud of you. But that's what's at stake is everyone's life and what God intends for us to be. And so it's worth it to talk about a hard thing. 
Satan, his goal is for us to hang our head in shame and defeat. But Jesus came to lift our head, to give us hope and healing and victory. And like Steve said, I'm a mama bear and not in my house. Hell no. It's not going to take this place. It's not going to take our families and our marriages and our children and our lives. We're going to become fully what God wants us to be. God's word says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He says, you are more than a conqueror. He says, I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So we're gonna be a church that talks about hard things and we're gonna support each other and we're gonna encourage each other and we're gonna not judge each other and we're gonna heal together and we're gonna push back Satan in this territory. So I'm gonna pray. Jesus, I pray for each person in this room that right now is feeling like, oh my goodness, they just talked about my deepest struggle, my secret. I pray right now that those people in this room would just feel so safe and so known and so loved by you. And the first person they would come to would be you and say, God, I'm ready. I need help. I ask for healing right now in Jesus' name. We sang the song, Break Every Chain. I see chains falling in Jesus' name right now. Jesus, we ask for victory. We ask, Jesus, for healing. We ask that each person here feels your presence and your love. Your word says it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. We repent, Jesus, and we ask for your help. We love you, Lord, and we know you love us no matter what. So bring us into the light and help us to be brothers and sisters who link arms together. In Jesus' name, amen.